This morning, we are continuing our sermon series, The Gospel and Sexuality, and our scripture reading is 1 Corinthians 6, 12 through 20. All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Well, hey, good morning. Um, Again, uh, perhaps one of the least well-known movies Will Ferrell has been in, but I think is probably one of his best, is called Stranger Than Fiction. And in this, in this uh, film, he plays Harold Crick, who's uh, an agent for the IRS who lives a very regimented life. Until one day, he begins to hear the voice of a woman omnisciently narrating his life. Only he can't communicate back to this person. And so as you might imagine, Harold's pretty disturbed by this. But he begins to deduce that and says his life is a story that's being told. But he doesn't know what it's about. And after a variety of things, he finally decides to go visit a literary professor named Jules Hilbert. And this professor reluctantly offers to help him. And in their second appointment, Jules asks him a, v- a variety of questions, and here's how it goes. She said, or he, um, Jules says, do you find yourself inclined to solve murder mysteries in large, luxurious homes? On a scale of one to 10, what would you consider to be the likelihood that you might be assassinated? Are you the king of anything? Is it possible that you were at one time made of stone, wood, lye, corpse parts of earth made holy by rabbinical elders? To which Harold Crick responds with, what do these questions have to do with anything? And Professor Jewell says this, nothing. But the only way to find out what story you're in is to determine what stories you're not in. And odd as it may seem, I have just ruled out half of Greek literature, seven fairy tales, ten Chinese fables, and determined conclusively that you are not King Hamlet, Scout Finch, Miss Marple, Frankenstein's monster, or a golem. This, this movie gets across a really simple yet profound point. Harold Crick, in order to know who he is, what his life is about, how he ought to live, comes down to one thing. 
what story he's in. In other words, he needs to know who he is and whose he is. And as we continue in this series of gospel and sexuality, that's actually what the Apostle Paul does here. We're looking at how the gospel story transforms what we do with our bodies. And we step back into this letter that was written at the church at Corinth. And if you remember a little bit, maybe from last week, if you were here, we said this, that, that Corinth was a city that was urban, that was growing in the first century, but it was actually um, known to be very sexually promiscuous. In fact, there was a term coined in that day that meant, to, if, if you said to Corinthianize, that was to be promiscuous sexually. It was so well known for it. And yet, in around 49 or 50 AD, the gospel came to Corinth. Paul shows up and talks about Jesus and his life and his death and his resurrection. And a church is born there. And Paul is writing this young church. And at best, you might say this church is confused. At worst, it's going rogue. Because as Paul enters this section, what we just read is there were men in the church still going to visit temple prostitutes, which, by the way, in that day was socially acceptable. There wasn't a problem with with that. That's what you normally did. And what we're going to see in this letter, in this section, is essentially the people that were doing this, these men were saying, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I'm free. And what's really interesting is the Apostle Paul does not go to ethics first. He doesn't go to the Ten Commandments. What he does is he starts out dealing with the questions of what is freedom, and then he goes all the way through the gospel. And at the very end, after going through the gospel story, he says, instead of saying you're free to do whatever you want, he says, verse 20, so glorify God with your body. In other words, what you do with your body is determined by what story you are living in. And we're going to spend two weeks in this passage looking at how the gospel story actually shapes, actually changes what we do with our bodies. And what we're going to see today, the gospel story gives the body and our lives hope, it gives our lives dignity, And it gives our lives purpose, which, if we understand it, will actually lead us to glorify God with our bodies. So, two headings today, yeah, just two. Um, First, the Corinthian and modern story of the body, and then secondly, the gospel story in the body. So, let me pray, and we'll we'll get in. Father, we pray in the midst of uh, a world um, that says a lot of things about what we do with our body, that through your scriptures, you would renew our minds. You would transform our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. <clears throat> well, firstly, the Corinthian or modern story of the body. Um, <clears throat> the passage opens, and it does so with actually three slogans that were very popular in that day. So at the very beginning of verse 12, this is one of them. All things are lawful for me. Now, this was held, this is popular in Corinth, but it was also popular within some within the church. And this is what they were saying is this, I'm forgiven. Therefore, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. I can do as I, as I please. The rules don't apply to me. 
The second is in verse 13. And it was this, food for the stomach and the stomach for food. By analogy, they were saying this, well, when you're hungry, you eat, and that's what your stomach is for. And therefore, sex is just like that. It's an appetite. When you have a desire, you satisfy it. Just go fulfill it. And the last slogan was this, and God will destroy both one and the other. Now, this was a dominant view of the world in that day that was very dualistic, that viewed the physical world as bad and the spiritual as good and eternal. And therefore, it was something like this, because your body in the end isn't going to go on forever, it's going to be destroyed, then who cares what you do with your body? Ultimately, all of these slogans led to essentially this statement, I can do whatever I want with my body because I'm free. That was the general understanding of what to do with your body. Now, here's the interesting part today. We have our own slogans about what we do with our body. They're all over Madison. Love is love. There's the quote of, you know, this is like a few years old, but you do you. And it's not all different from the Corinthian slogan. In essence, it's simply saying this, I can do what I want with my body, and I am free. The modern story, as one pastor would put it, is this, is, is simply this, you can do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt someone. You can decide for you and there, because there's no transcendent truth. Now, before we go on to the gospel story, we have to deal with something that Paul does here that's really interesting. Paul offers two initial critiques to the view, this view of freedom. It says, I can do whatever I want with my body. And they're important for their day. It's also important for our day. Look at verse 12, when Paul's responding to all things are lawful for me. He says this, but not all things are helpful. Paul is challenging this notion that freedom is the absence of all constraints. And he's saying this, if you live that way, guess what? It's not always beneficial for you. And let me give you a quick example of this. And most parents know this, right? So when it's Halloween and your kids go out and get candy and they return back, there's always that quandary. How many pieces of candy can I eat, right? That's the question. Now, sometimes, you know, there's different parenting styles here. I understand that, right? Some of you are like, have at it. Learn your own lesson, right? But some of us, myself included, would be like, okay, guys, like, I don't know, five to ten. I don't know whatever we said. I can't remember. It's been a while. But here's the point, right? Why do you say that? Why do you limit them? Because you know that if they eat the entire thing, it's not going to be helpful for them. It's not going to go well, right? In other words, you're trying to apply wisdom to them. You're trying to manage their sugar intake and therefore how much they're going to sleep that night. Not all things are beneficial. And Paul is saying, if you live with no constraints with what you do with your body, it will not be what's best for you or the other person spiritually, physically, and emotionally. The second one Paul offers in verse 12 is this, I will not be dominated 
by anything. And Paul is saying this, if you live your life in which there's no constraints, you can do whatever you want, he's saying don't fool yourself. You are serving something. You are. You're not free. And Paul is saying, I am not going to be dominated by anything. In other words, he's saying, if you just live by your desires, that's what's going to rule your day. So as Paul gets going here, he's trying to, in a sense, poke holes at this understanding of freedom. He's trying to say something more. He's trying to say, actually, True freedom is not the absence of all constraints, but it's actually having the wisdom to know the presence of the right ones. And and not only that, we shouldn't think of freedom merely as freedom from something, but actually freedom for something. What are we freeing ourselves for? What are we living for? Listen, you don't have to go far in our day to see many of the problems of adopting this form of freedom related to our bodies. Perhaps the most obvious one is the Me Too movement. Um, But one example is one written by Naomi Wolf, and it was written a number of years ago, but it was an article entitled The Porn Myth. And I don't think she's a Christian, uh, but she's writing an account about kind of the current cultural moment. And this is what she says. If you open yourself up to an ever more progressive stream of images, in the end, the ubiquity of those images does not liberate eros. It dilutes it. And what Naomi's saying there is she's saying, most people think if I look at these images, it's actually going to increase the eros. And she's saying it actually does the opposite. It dilutes it. And one of the things she talks about in this article is actually going on college campuses And she's having conversations, and she talks about how the young women on campus that speak of the effect of porn on their intimacy and lives, they feel like they can never measure up. The young men talk about what it's like growing up, learning about sex through porn and how it's not helpful. It doesn't actually help you be with a real woman. And then she writes, mostly, when I talk about loneliness, a deep, sad silence descends on the audience because they know they are alone together, even when they are conjoined together, and they don't know how to get out and find each other again. You see, Paul is trying to show in this opening passage that the freedom you're looking for is found elsewhere. And then Paul takes them to the gospel story And look with me at a moment, at a brief section of verse 13. Paul says this, that the body is not meant for sexual immorality. And think with me for a moment. The the Greek word for sexual immorality is porneia. That's where we get our term pornography. And it's a term that ultimately means any sex outside the covenant of marriage between a man and a woman. And in the city of Corinth, in that day, that was at best prudish. In our day, to suggest this is oftentimes offensive. But here's the question. No matter your view, and I realize there's probably a variety of views here today, would you at least linger with me for a moment? Why is Paul saying this? 
How can Paul say is, your body is not meant for this? You know, is Paul someone that's filled with hate? Is Paul maybe prudish? Does he have a, you know, kind of a view of sex that's bad? How is Paul getting this? And here's what's phenomenal. Look at where Paul begins. Look at verse 14. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Where does Paul begin? Paul begins not with ethics, not with the Ten Commandments. He starts with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. The next time someone asks you your hot take on the cultural issue of sexuality, try that on for size. Because this is where Paul starts. He starts with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. That is what informs his ethics. That's what informs what he, what he is suggesting. Your body is not meant for this, but for something else. So why? Why begin there? Well, think, think of a couple things here. One is the underpinning of the resurrection is, is simply news that God, the eternal son, put on flesh. It's known as the incarnation. We were just there in Advent. That was the narrative, the story. God actually put on flesh. Listen, if you want to find value and dignity and worth for the body, there is no other religion under the sun where you see it in full disclosure right here. Because God himself puts on flesh. And listen, this was a direct contradiction to that present day in which saw the bad, excuse me, saw the physical as bad and the spirit as good. The incarnation communicated the goodness of the body. But the resurrection means Jesus still has a body. It's a glorified one. Um, in just a couple months, we'll be at Easter. And actually, our text for that day is a really strange text because it's actually after Jesus has bodily risen from the dead, he's having a Bible study with his disciples, trying to, trying to get them to understand what just happened. And in the middle of the Bible study, this is one of those details where you're like, Luke, why would you put this in there? But Jesus says, do you have anything to eat? And of course, they're fishermen. We, we, we got some fish. And Jesus eats. Now, why is that in there? Because it's what happened. It's what actually happened. And the, the scriptures say he still has a body. And check this, the implication then, as Paul says, that if God raised the Lord, he'll also raise up us by his power. And here's what that means. It means your future is an embodied future with a real body.
Vinith Ramachandra talking about the distinction of what Christianity says about salvation says this, Christian salvation lies not in an escape from this world, but in the transformation of this world. You will not find hope for this physical world in any other religious system of philosophy. The biblical vision is unique. Paul says what you do with your body matters, and the wisdom to know what to do with your body begins right here with the bodily resurrection of Jesus. Now, most of us, if you're a Christian, you're like, hey, yep, resurrection, great, but the implications of what that means actually for our bodies, that's like, we don't think about that. Pastor Scott Cunningham was super helpful. He's a local pastor here, and he, he had two implications that I want to grab. The first one is it actually shows the eternal dignity of your body. Um, this actually hits in a couple different ways. One is, in the city of Corinth, in that day, there was a tremendous stratification. In other words, if you were an elite man in a position of power, it was completely acceptable for you to be sexual with prostitutes, with slaves, even boys. That was what was acceptable in that day. And why was that? It was acceptable because those positions of slaves and women and prostitutes and boys, they were on a lower scale. But the bodily resurrection of Jesus, what does that say? It completely upends the notion because it says this, all men and all women, no matter age or position, are made in the image of God. No matter their station in life, there's value to them. There's dignity. But it didn't just affect them socially, implications-wise. It affected them personally. Scott mentions this, that oftentimes the taproot of our sexual sin and suffering is because we think sex doesn't matter because we don't matter. It leads to devaluing ourselves and dehumanizing others. It can even lead to splitting your mind against your body. He notes how nobody watches porn and thinks these are image bearers with dignity that are one day going to be raised eternally. It's just food for the stomach. You see, don't you understand? Paul, in starting with a resurrection, he is saying there is intrinsic dignity and value and worth. It's bodily. But secondly, there's hope for the body. One of the things Scott points out is he, um, you know, oftentimes, if we recognize the dignity and value and worth of our body, one of the things that happens, though, is oftentimes we think either by what we have done or by what's been done to us, we think we've lost it and we'll never get it back. And sometimes the church has perpetuated this. You know, um, I think one of the most, you know, like Matt Chandler has a bunch of various YouTube pieces that are, I think, very popular, but one is a pastor in um, Texas but he tells the story of being a freshman at college 
And um, he and some friends were beginning to just reach out to a single woman and share the gospel with her and just love her and serve her. And they invited her to um, some service at a church. And the pastor gets up and says, I'm going to talk about sex. And he got a red rose and he smelled it and he talked about just how beautiful it was and how it smelled so great. And he talked about this kind of being like, like sex and like you as a person. And he said, why don't you go ahead? Just like, I'm going to take this rose and he throws it out and you go ahead feel it, look at it. And there's all these college students there and he begins to teach about sex. And, and Matt just mentions how at best it was fear mongering the rest of the teaching. And then at the end, he says, where's the rose? And so um, they pass the rose up. And of course, it's been handled by so many different people, right? Like it's, there's petals off of it. It's sort of broken. And this pastor's big crescendo was this. Who would want this? And Matt just mentions, he's just like, at that point, it took everything within him not to stand up and yell, Jesus wants the rose. That's the point. And see, brothers and sisters, this is the beauty of the resurrection. Don't you understand? Jesus bodily suffered. When you consider what happened leading up to the cross and on the cross, the whole point of that was dehumanization. And he entered in. Why? For your sin and my sin. All of it. And Pastor Scott, just, this is what he says. This means this, nothing you have done sexually and nothing that has been done to you is more powerful than the resurrection of Jesus. There is no wound that you have received that Jesus cannot heal. There is no sin that you have committed that Jesus cannot forgive. And there is no shame you bear that, cannot, that, that can withstand the cleansing power of the blood of God. Friends, we're only to verse 14. This is where Paul begins with the resurrection. What, what you do with your body is determined by what story you live in. And listen, I understand some of you might be exploring Christianity, might be coming back to it, and you've got a lot of questions or a lot of things, a lot of hang-ups. And you might say something like this. I, I could hear a typical person mass and say, well, okay, so I get it. Whatever story you're in, that's kind of how you live. Well, well, then really it's like, you know, kind of what story do you want to live in? It's kind of up to you. But I want to press that for a moment, if that's where you are. <laughs> because consider this. If Jesus bodily rose from the dead in the middle of space, time, and history, the eternal Son of God, then guess what that means? That is the true story of the world. In fact, later on in 1 Corinthians, Paul will say this. He will say, um, <laughs> if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. <laughs> Paul is saying, if it didn't happen, then who cares? Everything I've said is worthless. It doesn't matter. But if he did rise from the dead, do you know what that means? You have value and worth and dignity and purpose because he's risen. All right, one more thing. Look at the end 
of verse 13. Paul closes out this first section. He says, but he says, the body is not meant for sexual morality, but then notice what he says at the last point. But for the Lord and the Lord for the body. Paul is saying there's a purpose for your body. And you've got to be going, what in the world is Paul saying here? Right? What is he saying? What does it even mean? And we're going to spend the next week there, but let me give you a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a teaser into what that means. Um, the scriptures actually begin with a wedding. And actually, in Revelation, the scriptures end with a wedding. In Genesis, it's Adam and Eve, the first wedding. In Revelation, it's Jesus Christ and the church. The storyline of scripture actually is summed up in a wedding on both sides. And that has tremendous implications and deep truths, but To put it simply, Christopher West puts it this way. God wants to marry us. I know that sounds strange. And it's not literal, right? It's it's a picture, it's a metaphor to show a faint glimpse of the commitment and love that God has toward us in Christ. Um, you know, one of the things, one of my favorite things to do as a pastor is to officiate weddings. Done a number of them. Uh, they're a lot of fun. And one of the things about officiating a wedding is you actually have the best seat in the house. And one of my favorite parts of it is right when, you know, it's the moment when the bride comes in, right? And you say, everybody rise. And they all rise. And everybody's eyes go back. They're all looking at the bride. Which, you know, I mean, the dress, it's a lot of money, so yeah, it's good. And she looks great, you know, wonderful. But I get to look at the groom. And you look at his face. And you're just looking at this one coming. I love that. Because you, you see this longing, this desire, this joy, this, oh my word, this is, they're going to be mine, and I'm going to be theirs. Do you understand in Isaiah 62, describing how God is toward his people, it says this, that he's, as a bridegroom, rejoices over his bride, so he rejoices over you. Which means this, the purpose of our bodies, we were meant for the Lord, and the Lord is for us. It's bound up in a relationship with God, one in in which awaits us in the future, in which we'll be ushered into his presence to the overflowing love of God in Christ. What you do with your body is determined by what story you live in. And that's what the story, the scriptures say, it's all about. Well, that's part one this week. We got part two next week, so, you know, please come back and let me pray. Father, um, we thank you that you have not left us in the dark, that you speak to the issues of the day, that you speak to our, our shame, you speak to our sin, you speak to our 
whole host of things, and you do it um, in a way that is absolutely remarkable that you enter in, that you love us and that you're for us. Lord, as we continue in this series, would you continue to illuminate for us the person and work of Jesus so that as we do, we may be a people that glorify you with all that we have, including our bodies. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.